Welcome to Boots Off Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business. A show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David and I'll be your host for the show. G'day everybody and welcome to another episode of Boots Off Log On. Today I'm talking with Paul Burke, the CEO of NT Farmers or Northern Territory Farmers Association. Paul has been working in Northern Australia for over 20 years and in the agricultural advocacy space for over the past decade. He has represented AgForce in Queensland, the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association, worked for the DPI in the Northern Territory and has spent the past three years with NT Farmers. Paul is passionate about Northern Australia and is encouraging everybody to go north as that's where he sees many of the future opportunities in ag are. We start by having an informative and wide-ranging conversation about the hot topic in agriculture right now, biosecurity, and how farmers and the wider community can actively manage the risk. We discuss strategies on how you as a farmer can include biosecurity into your financial planning, budgeting, and control and how these good financial budgeting and modelling and control habits can not only improve your biosecurity risk, but your banking relationships and lower your financial risk and maybe even your lending margin. We discuss how farmers are using diversification strategies to manage their biosecurity and climate risk, and he helps us understand the uniqueness of Northern Australia, like the many untapped agricultural opportunities for Aboriginal businesses and the wider Aboriginal people in Northern Australia, who own 56% of the Northern Territory landmass. Paul paints a compelling picture for the vision he has for Northern Australia. Paul is like Northern Australia's Ned Stark or Jon Snow from the Game of Thrones. He says, the time is now for the North, for people willing to grab the opportunity with both hands. This is a compelling and very interesting conversation I have with Paul that may encourage you to go north. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thanks a lot, David, and great to be here and look forward to having a bit of a conversation over the next period. Yeah, definitely. Look, our team were just up north and listening to you speak to thousands of farmers at the Catherine Show. Um, so there was an attendance like I said, thousands of farmers from across northern agricultural region of Australia. Now, one of the topics you were talking about in particular, Paul, was obviously the one of the hot topics in ag at the moment, uh, biosecurity, and in particular, obviously, the, the risk of foot and mouth entering Australia from Indonesia. So my question here is, from an agricultural point of view and from an everyone point of view, why is biosecurity so important and why should farmers and consumers take it a lot more seriously than maybe we are? So biosecurity is a great topic. I, I think over the last decade, the conversation's really changed in terms of the way we perceive biosecurity and biosecurity threats. We've had across the plant sector, we've had numerous incursions over the last decade and we've had some significant learnings out of those. So I think from, from a grower's perspective, it's one of their main risks in terms of their production and their outputs, but also the cost of inputs. So if there is you know, a fall army worm 
plague that comes through your place, the cost to treat that is significantly higher. So I think people are starting to understand more that biosecurity has a significant impact on the bottom line. And I think that's created a, a real conversation amongst growers where previously we, we had biosecurity practices, but it wasn't front and centre in, in a grower's mind. Whereas now I think growers are actually factoring that into their business. And so when they're doing their annual budgets, for example, biosecurity should mm. be a consideration in those. And, and NT farmers have just done a series of workshops for growers across the Northern Territory around financial fitness. So a little bit of a health check on your business and how your business is operating. And one of the components that we've added into that is, well, what are your current biosecurity threats? What are the potentials in your business to interrupt your business? So starting to factor those into their, their financial planning as well, because biosecurity is not something that you just have and set and forget. You need to keep revisiting it. You, you mentioned foot and mouth disease. So if foot and mouth disease came into Australia, a lot of it, all, all of our international markets would collapse on, on the day we got a detection. So, you know, what impact does that have on my on my business? And what, what, what do I do to try and mitigate those risks within my organisation? So I think that's where biosecurity is really starting to play out from a grower's perspective. In terms of the public, I think one of the really interesting things that's happened over the last two, two and a half years with the, um, with the COVID outbreak has been biosecurity became some front and centre for people sitting in Melbourne in an apartment, for example, or someone sitting in Perth. The movement restrictions actually came in under the Biosecurity Act. So there is a far greater understanding of biosecurity now from the general population of Australia than there ever has been before. And that's been driven from a, a, a pandemic um, in the human race as opposed to a plant or an animal-based disease we've always associated biosecurity with, the governments of the territories and states actually enforce their their state borders under a biosecurity act, which which is really interesting. Yeah, so do you think that the silver lining then for the agricultural industry outside of COVID is the fact that, so in particular, let's talk about something that affects people in a, and I suppose a very daily, well, not a daily, but a regular thing. So like people just is doing something as routine as going back to Bali or to Kuala Lumpur or wherever, right? And the there's always been strong biosecurity controls where, you know, when you travel to a place like Papua New Guinea or things like that, but not usually from other countries. So do you think the fact that people have now, you like you mentioned, used to controls around COVID, that they will hopefully adapt to stronger controls when they might come back from Bali, for so, example? That's a really, really interesting question. So I think if we go back in time, back to SARS, when SARS became a, a thing and travelling internationally and, and the air house testers walking through with the aerosol cans of spray mm. giving us a, a really good uh, dose of Agent Orange or whatever was in it. Yeah. And, and I think <laughs> that was the starting point for some significant changes. And I think all levels of government have started to really take biosecurity really seriously, and especially in North Australia. So North Australia is, you know, it, it is the main thoroughfare where we're going to get pest and disease entries into Australia. And we know that, and, and we've had to deal with that for, for a significant amount of time. But I think the, the question around the general public going to Bali, Kuala Lumpur, Papua New Guinea, wherever it is, I think the airlines um, have certainly tightened up 
their information around, you know, what's biosecurity, what's a biosecurity threat. But I think also just walking into an airport now where you're walking through a footpath, for example, if you're coming back from Indonesia, in most mm. of the ma major international airports, there'll be a dog there standing to greet you as well and, you know, potentially sniff, sniff out your McDonald's like someone found this week and... I think their fine was $2,600 for a Big Mac, so very, very expensive. But I think those messages will, will get out to the public really quickly. And we do confiscate something like 70 tonnes of meat product coming into Australia illegally a year in people's, people's luggage. And, and when you think about 70 tonnes, that's a significant amount of undeclared items. So I think people are still, st still not fully complying with, with the regulation, but I think, you know, 99.9% .9 of the people do, and, and we just have to, to, to educate those people and continue to tell them why we're doing these things. Don't just put a restriction in, tell everyone why and make sure that, that that's in language that people can understand. Yeah, definitely. So those that undeclared, I suppose, food products that are coming in, is that, you know, from people who are residents and visitors, is it, for example, biosecurity, we have the luxury of being an island. And so, you know, we've always, I suppose, had this natural geographical barrier in a way. But many countries have um, had had long-term biosecurity or disease issues that they've never really, would never really be able to control because they don't have their natural advantages. Do you find people who who live with what we're trying to avoid tend to be harder to educate than people who, like you said, like us, growing up on an island? So for returning residents, so for residents in Australia that are going on holidays, I don't think there's any excuse not to be informed. You just need to walk through an airport at the moment and there's, there's plenty of signage, uh, there's flyers around the place, there's announcements on the flights. I think it's a little bit more difficult for people coming from other countries and, and especially some of the countries we have concerns about at the moment like Indonesia or Papua New Guinea they're not as well developed as Australia so I think it's harder to get the message out to those those groups and we also have language barriers we we all forget that not everyone in, in the world speaks English there's a population mm. in Indonesia of 275 million or 280 million people of which mm. probably 10 million speak good English, you know, probably that 5%, 2%. So I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that those messages are going to get through. It needs to be a case-by-case basis, and I think we need that strong enforcement at the border and a well-resourced biosecurity agency, both federally and at state level, to ensure that we're mitigating the risks as much as we possibly can. Do you think this is layers, Paul? So, you know, you've got, like you said, that strong border and, you know, resourcing that strong border. But then you've obviously got so many ways down the supply chain and the food chain. So you've got farm gate, you've got in and out of farms, you've got within regions. Is this a multi-layered effect, biosecurity? I think it certainly is. And, and I think biosecurity is a shared responsibility. So it's shared across governments, across industry and the general population to a certain extent. But industry has a vested interest. They're the ones that are most likely to lose, both financially and, and emotionally. So if there's an outbreak on your farm, that's going to have a significant emotional toll. And if you think about FMD or lumpy skin disease that are both on our doorstep, if that got in, the emotional toll for growers to have to destroy their animals and their livelihood would be massive. But I think if we focus on 
the federal government has a role in protecting the borders. And, and what I mean by protecting the borders is, is having those strong processes in place at point of entry to ensure that, that we aren't bringing things in that we shouldn't be, that risk to industry. And I think state and territory governments have a role in general education, both industry and the general public, but they also have a role in response. So sometimes those risks are not coming in via an aeroplane. Sometimes they're, they're airborne vectors. Sometimes they're coming in, in the case of um, Japanese enfilitis, is coming in on an infected person. So they've been bitten and they may mm. not be aware that, that they could carry. So, you know, I, I think it is multi-layered. It's complex. But I think everything needs to be on the table to ensure that, that we do protect our industry because the agricultural industry is worth somewhere in the order of $70 billion a year and, and, and pushing to get to $100 billion by 2030. We're a major employer and a major outbreak will have an impact on employment. It'll have a significant impact on small regional communities. So if you think about not having a market to sell your cattle, you won't need the same amount of staff, which will then have an impact on, you know, is the school local school viable? Is, mm. you know, the tyre shop going to be able to survive without those extra people? So I think that's serious, that we need to take biosecurity as, as one of the key components within any business. So countries that have suffered quite large biosecurity outbreaks, and in particular ones that we know well, like Britain, you know, they've had Mad Cow, which we've only just... When was that? 80s? I don't know, 80s yeah. or 90s. And it's only banned. I was just giving blood last week and they said, now you can give blood from the UK. And I said, wow, you know, that was, I can remember from my teenage years. And suddenly you're only just allowed to give blood, you know, like, and so, and obviously foot and mouth and uh, many others. So what can we learn from, you know, close cousins like the UK about how to manage biosecurity? I mean, because they've had the impact of it not being done right um, and would have le- you always learn a lot when you make mistakes so what can we learn from them Paul? So I think the, the, the key part around any biosecurity outbreak so any outbreak at all is make sure the response is quick it's well resourced and it's well rehearsed and what I mean by that is at point of entry when the outbreak is at the smallest is actually the most cost cost effective time to treat it. Mm. So don't quibble over whether it should be a million dollars or three million dollars or ten million dollars. Make the investment early to ensure that you isolate it as much as possible. Mm. And then make sure that what you're doing has been well rehearsed and, and learn from your past incursions and, and others' past incursions, but but practice. You know, like we know that risk is right on our doorstep. So practice your response and practice your response to try and trigger mistakes or, or gaps so that they can be addressed early. And, and don't, don't be embarrassed when something doesn't work in a practice session because that's when you want it not to work mm. and you want to be able to address it then. So I think we really have some good learnings around biosecurity outbreaks, but here in Australia, we've got some really good learnings too. So, you know, in the Northern Territory, for example, we had banana freckle in you know, 2012, 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm. um, the response wasn't particularly handled well. We've now got another biosecurity um, outbreak with banana freckle again in the Northern Territory that was found a couple of months ago. And we're really conscious that that take the learnings from, from the past incursion and where the system really failed 
and get it into this system now so we actually have learned from our, our past mistakes. And I think a lot of our past mistakes were around poor communication and lack of communication. And everyone um, thought it was someone else's job to do the informing. And then that caused a lot of division and, and a lot of untold stress, especially for commercial growers through that process. So I think, you know, communicate well, communicate clearly in a language that people can understand. And this is not a criticism of government, but not everyone speaks government speak. You, you and I are probably lucky enough we go to a lot of senior government meetings and, and we sort of have an understanding of how those conversations go. But the average person would probably think we'd be speaking in Swahili or something because yeah. it's just a different language set. So I think industry has a critical role to play to ensure that those messages are targeted to the markets that they're trying to yeah. get to. Are you happy with the way, talking about governments we can't control, you know, at the end of the day, we're surrounded by millions, you know, I think we're surrounded by 60% of the world's population. And um, are you so are you happy with, or is the government in particular happy, or are the organisation happy with the way the Indonesian government have been cracking down, using those things, quick response and vaccination, all those things with, with the current outbreak above us? I think it should be acknowledged that in Indonesia is a massive country. It's a very diverse country. They will certainly have challenges getting the message out to all people, and we respect that. But I think Indonesia is certainly doing its damnedest to get on top of this, and, and that comes a little bit back to the financial impacts. And in yeah. a lot of cases in Indonesia, there's small subsistence farmers that they lose their 10 cows. You know, they've lost everything. That that's gets real very quick, doesn't it? It does get real very quick. So I think Indonesia have done an exceptional job there's still a lot more to be done though yeah now can i just pivot back to something you said earlier on financial you talking about uh you were talking about the bottom line um to growers and you know how do they how do they how do they put biosecurity into their cash flows into their budgets um it's one of those things that you know it's like all of us it's until something happens to us, it goes into the box. Until something happens to us, it's just an expense or a hassle. But when it happens, like you said, it can wipe out an industry, a bloodline, many things. So, so how do we plan for the known unknown, Paul, especially financially? It's a really good question, and and there is no exact science. Um, <laughs> so much of what we do in agriculture, <laughs> we try and base everything we do on science and, and well-informed decisions, but it, it will vary. But I think you run some scenarios and you start on your top line and just pretend for a moment I'm a mango grower. Um, we're heading into mm -hmm. mango season, so it's probably a good time to talk about mangoes. And you say, if there was an incursion of this pest, what would that do to my markets? What would that do to my domestic borders? Would I be allowed to still send fruit to Western Australia? Would I still be allowed mm -hmm. to send fruit to Victoria? And there's plenty of examples around fruit fly outbreaks and things like that, that that you can base that conversation on. And then you go, well, if if that was to be found here, what would that do to my export markets? And then run some scenarios through your top line and start to go, this is the impact it would have on my sales, for example. Mm -hmm. And then working through your profit and loss statement, what would that do at, at certain lines within your profit and loss statement? So, so your farm input, so your chemicals mm -hmm. to treat these things. What, what would it do to that? What would the cost be for me to increase my biosecurity border around my farm? 
so so I think you can factor all of that in in a scenario based and you could say you know if this happened I would lose 40% of my markets mm-hmm. for example or 50% of my markets or 100% of my markets well, where are those alternate markets can I still use that for juicing can I can I find somewhere else to find a home for those products and then what what's the cost to the business you know like if I'm I'm going away from selling premium mangoes into Coles or Woolworths or IGA somewhere in Australia and mm-hmm. I'm now selling juicing mangoes into Berry or, or somewhere else? Or What's that do to my revenue? What's that do to my cost per unit? And I think you can quite easily come up with some scenario bases where you can factor it in to, to your business. And I think if you're doing that and it happens, you're already well down the track of being prepared. And I think the other component of that is documentation so you need to have good documentation in, in any of these processes and i think it goes for any business um gone are the days where you, you throw all your receipts into a shoebox <laughs> and then it sits in the corner and and you look at it and think i've got to do those i've got to do those i've got to do those a, a business that is well organized that has timely financial reporting is far more likely to survive a major incursion than one that's not and I think that's a key message to growers is do some scenario-based planning within your organisation and ensure that you've got the right financial tools to be able to walk into a bank and say, hey, listen, this has just happened. I'm not going to be able to pay my um, overdraft this month mm. you know, and, and have all of that supporting documentation to so, show that you're a viable business. And through no fault of your own, you've, you've, you've had a, a biosecurity incursion that, that's impacted what you can do and how you can sell it. So I think that, that planning is critical. The other thing you talked about there, especially with banks, you know, like let's, everyone's got a banker of some sort, whether it be your own bank or a commercial bank, is a banker, anyone lending money is lending, they're betting on you, they're betting on your risk, your ability to manage risk. So like you said, there's also opportunity, like you're saying, for to go to the bank and say, look, I've done a scenario, I know this disease is a possibility within our business, is it comes in, this is what how we're going to react, this is how we're going to control it, this is what impact it will have on our bottom line. So it's a bit like... Uh, demonstrating to them that you have capability to manage the risk, isn't it? Like it's a... definitely, and I think from a from a banking perspective, and having been in agriculture now, feels like a lifetime, and it probably is. But if you have all of that data available, you are more likely to get preferential rates as well. And mm. and agriculture developments aren't cheap. You know, like often you're carrying debt in the millions, not in the in the thousands. So you know, if you can shave half a percent off your interest rate, yeah. that's that's money that's potentially going straight to your bottom line. So I think yeah. that that planning is critical. And the way banks look at that is if you factored in your risks, if you've acknowledged your risks, if you know your risks, if you've planned for your risks, they are more likely to give you a better rate. And I, and I think yeah. some of that's lost. I think a lot of people see a headline interest rate and go, oh, well, that's the best available. Well, that's rarely the best available. Yeah, and people, I suppose it's acknowledging the fact that at the end of the day, margin for a bank is also risk. You know, yeah. if you are if you have a higher chance of defaulting, then you, they're going to have to charge you more. I mean, it's just a, it's a reality of life, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and that's a good way to look at it. And, and I think the other component is often you'll find people are concerned to go and talk to a bank when they're, you know, mm. just starting to see some problems on the horizon. 
they'll they'll push it aside until it becomes a big problem. And I think if you go in early, have those conversations early, and 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 take your banker on the journey with you, and, and they'll have information that they require that you can start factoring in, and and you can mitigate the risk to your organisation by doing that early and having a good relationship with your banker. Never be never be scared to pick up the phone and talk to your banker, good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah, I think the point you're making here is they're going to do the numbers on you anyway. So they prefer you to do the numbers on you because then they know you're both on the same page, isn't it? So oh, the, the banker has the banker has to acknowledge, has to model your risk even if you don't. Yeah, and I think you'll find that banks will be very conservative in the way they do that. But you've got real t- real-time data. You've got real-time experience. You know your business better than anyone. So I think you're in the best position to actually be able to go and talk to a bank and say, this is actually what it looks like for me. And, and this is how I justify getting to that position. So I think that's a two-way conversation. And, you know, those initial positions might be a long way apart, but I think they, they do come together and that relationship at the beginning, because they, they, they know what your sales are. They, they can see the money going through your bank. They, they can see your expenses. They could probably almost make a P&L out of, out, of your, out of your bank account statement, but they have the data. So, you know, don't try and hide it. Just try and be as accurate and, and truthful as you can. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being optimistic and say, you know, this is how I'm going to address it and this is what I think I'm going to do. So Yeah, they just don't want you to have hope as a strategy, do they, Paul? Opportunities, though, talking about vision. So one of the things that when you're talking about people, you know, putting in these scenarios, one of the scenarios is in getting access to markets. There's thousands of case studies around the world where one person, one country's or grower's tragedy is another one's opportunity. And, and can growers sometimes think about the ability to invest better in things like biosecurity might create opportunities, whereas in the fact that a market might close to one set of growers in one region but open up to them because they have better biosecurity and they don't have that disease on their farm. Is that a, a realistic scenario? I think it is. It is certainly a realistic scenario. And I think our produce is world-renowned across so many different sectors. And I think one of the really interesting components, and if you look at broadacre cropping, for example, or, or, or horticulture, and there's a biosecurity risk in, say, tomatoes. So what a lot of growers will do, they'll mitigate that risk by growing some capsicums as well, or they'll move from chickpeas to sorghum or, or whatever. So, so they're not only mitigating their risks by improving their biosecurity, they're being adaptable in how they're, they're, they're operating their business. And, you know, you, you start to see, you know, businesses that, that go through hardship because of a biosecurity mm-hmm. outbreak, and especially in the plant-based industries where we've had, you know, significant mm-hmm. outbreaks over the last couple of decades, they've evolved very quickly. Where it becomes difficult is if you're in something like a tree crop, like mm-hmm. a mango crop, or something that takes a long time to establish, and, and that's where it's very hard to change your commodity output. So you've got to look at other opportunities. So how do you value add? How do you actually bring, you know, in, in the case of an outbreak, how do you actually ensure that you've still got some trade going through your business to be able to survive? And I think that's where the opportunity is. And, and if there was an outbreak in, you know, the pumpkin industry in the Northern Territory and it wasn't in Western Australia, that does create an opportunity straight away for, for those other group of growers. And it's a little bit of swings and roundabouts. We're all yeah. going to be stuck in this at some point. So make money while the hay shines. Well, make 
pay while I'm while I'm yeah, definitely. Because we do have those. We're not only an island, but we have all these little micro barriers within our country. We have deserts down south. We have, you know, large tracts of land up north between places, you know. So it's um, we have almost these natural biosecurity barriers, which those damn toads are breaking broken through. But, you know, within our country as well. So we can almost isolate parts of the states as well in some cases, can't we? I, th- I think we can, and, and I think one of the over-the-horizon conversations that that's happening now and I think needs significantly more work from a research and development point of view is what are the impacts of climate change on some of those things you talked about. So will we see some diseases moving further south that, that we never saw before? Will we see some of the established pests and diseases we've got within Australia moving their geographic location because of climate change. And I think I don't have an answer for that, but I think they are some really interesting developments around climate change over the next century, two mm. centuries. And, and you and I probably won't be around to see the final outcome of it. Well, I'm sure I won't be. But I, I think if you've got a business in Bundaberg at the moment or a business in Perth, the climatic outlook for those locations was going to be very different in 50 years time you know it's potentially going to horticulture you mentioned in particular i was um actually talking to michael who you've spoken to in our business who's got a um who's uh, and, a, and he was talking to our horticultural clients and they were talking about how you know growing certain things has moved you know there used to be a region within each state you grow a particular type of you know vegetable yeah. or a grape or varietals and now that variety has moved now you can grow this in a different region or you can no longer grow it in that region so even the ability to grow the best version of a particular you know grape or a vegetable is starting to move regions already and i think the other component of that is seasons are slightly changing too so you know where you might say the first rock melon hits the market from the northern territory on the first of april or the first of may every year you know that's changing and some of that's through better genetics in in plants so mm. you know shorter growing periods more reliable but also it's around well we can't plant until the wet season's finished because mm-hmm. they'll get wet feet and they'll die um and the wet seasons are getting either shorter or longer depending on where you are so i i think you're dead right we're going to have some massive changes and readjustments in our our sector over the next hundred years but i think of all of the countries in the world, Australia is, is one of the best places. We've got a lot of available land. We are one of the driest continents in the world, but in North Australia, which is what I'm really passionate about, um, water is our comparative advantage. We do get a reliable mm-hmm. wet season and, and all of the scientific data I've looked at in relation to climate change has us having more rainfall, but also more severe events. So you know, more cyclones. So, so how do we adapt our, our businesses to encompass more cyclones? You know, is it, you know, shorter trees? Is it trellised? Mm. Is it, you know, like there's a whole range of questions in that. And I think, you know, Australia is quite a wealthy country. Um, we do invest good mm. money into research and development. So I think we are really well placed to be a world leader in, in the emerging or in industry, agricultural sector over the next 100 years, we'll be a powerhouse. Yeah, definitely. So there's a couple of things I want to talk about. One is the vision for the Northern Agricultural Region in particular. But just before I get there, 
you're just touching the last thing on the the, the forecasting, the budgeting scenario. Is it? Um, are you seeing more growers diversify or start looking at what you said these medium to longer term strategies within their business to maybe start looking at the trends within their region or starting to, because for example there might be a, a high biosecurity risk in bananas or in honey or whatever to start maybe diversifying their business or or putting in different long, medium to long term investment strategies just acknowledge that risk and and not have all their eggs in one basket, literally? The answer to that is is yes. Most agricultural businesses I talk to are looking at diversifying, whether that's across a, a range of crops as opposed to an individual crop. Or in some cases, and I think there's a really good example of this in the banana industry in Queensland, that, that Panama Trace 4, mm-hmm. which is a biosecurity issue, um, was found in the Tully region. And what we've, what we've seen in that region is... is Growers have actually geographically diversified. So they've actually oh, yeah. started businesses in Mareeva, in Cape York, and and they're mitigating their risk by having diverse locations as opposed mm-hmm. to diversity of product or d- diversity of, of crop. Um, so I think that diversification can come in many shapes and forms, but but all businesses that are going to be successful are going to have to diversify to, to mitigate their risk. It's just a yeah, given. Definitely. So in more general... You're a passionate Northern Australian man. I think you were the you were the head of the Northern Cattlemen's Association for a while too, weren't you, Paul? Is that right? Yes, I was. So I've had a few stints. I've worked in North Queensland for nearly a decade. Um, I was state operations manager for Agforce over there. So cattle, sheep, and and grain was the key focus over there. And then moved to the territory to head up the Northern Territory Cattlemen's Association. So very much cattle focused there. And did a stint in government. Um, worked as the director of major projects within Department of Agriculture for, for a period and then came across to Northern Territory Farmers. And part of that is is around the passion to see, you know, communities in North Australia thrive. And a strong farming sector and a strong resource sector will give the growth in, in those regional communities. And North Australia is not well understood by the rest of mm-hmm. Australia. We are a little bit unique. You know, a little bit, a little bit like you, a little bit like Western Australians that think they're the Republic of Western <laughs> Australia some days. Um, um, but North Australia is a very different place, and we talk about if we look at the Northern Territory, for example, you know, fifty-six percent of the landmass is Aboriginal owned or, mm. or or operated. You know, so forty-four percent or forty-two percent is the pastoral estate, and two percent is everything else. So, if we're going to have a really strong agriculture sector. We can't just rely on on that forty two percent. We need to actually diversify and, and and encourage investment on our Aboriginal land as well. And I, and I think that's that's a critical part of growing our industry and growing our pie in North Australia is is how do we create some agricultural opportunities that Aboriginal people want to participate in in a meaningful way and create an economy. Because one of the things we really struggle with in North Australia is how do we close the gap? How, how do we better integrate as a society across all races and religions and how do we make sure that we're not leaving one sector behind or one group behind. So what do you see as the big opportunities for the Aboriginal people in general but Aboriginal business opportunities and farming opportunities within Northern Australia? So what what are the big opportunities you're sort of seeing um, evolve for the Aboriginal people? So that's a really interesting question and I think, you know, our established industries like cattle, cotton, horticulture, 
there's tremendous opportunities. Aboriginal people have some very good land holdings. They have access to water. So I think there is opportunity there. But I, I think one that we need to explore and understand more is is what's a bush foods industry actually look like? I mean, we, we often see now on, you know, cooking shows on televisions or in the good restaurants, we'll see, you know, like steamed barramundi in, in paperbark. People will want to order it because they actually want to actually engage with that that food culture. But I think there's a, there's a larger conversation around what else? Aboriginal people have lived here for 60,000 years and used a lot of plants and, and, and you know, a lot of herbs for medicinal purposes. And, you know, we don't really understand that at all well. And there could be some significant business opportunities around integrating those in, into more conventional medicines. And I think that's a really exciting place to be. And, you know, I've, I've always ha- had this this thought in North Australia, we have a lot of water buffalo running around, riverine buffalo running around the place. And, you know, imagine going to the footy at um, the MCG or any of the big stadiums and, and, and getting, you know, a buffalo and bush tomato pie. You know, th- there is tremendous opportunity if, if we can get the encouragement and the policy setting. Yeah, right. definitely. So, we tend to, when you talked about things like um, bush medicine in particular, we tend to hold other ancient cultures like Chinese culture and their medicine in very high esteem, especially their ancient medicine. And But we don't really realise that we've got an older culture sitting right within us that has just probably got just as much to, to give in that way. We're just, um, you know, we're just not exposed enough. We're not aware. And, and if we don't start to do that soon, some of that culture mm. will be lost and it'll be lost for everyone forever. So I, I think it is really important and, and really timely that we do that. And, you know, living, living in North Australia, we see it on a daily basis. Like I would rarely go to a, to a meeting that's, that's over four or five people where we don't have Aboriginal participation. And, you know, that's very different to the southern and eastern states where you just don't have that same level of exposure that you know 35 percent of our population is aboriginal Mm. so you know you are going to interact and and i think if we can show the right level of respect we've all got something to learn in that space and i think aboriginal people have got a lot of learnings around land management as well that that, that we can learn and we're seeing that in some of the fire regimes and some of the carbon projects that are running in north australia there are other opportunities i think around you know biodiversity biodiversity credits that that Aboriginal people may participate in and, and some of their investments or some of their business opportunities may not look like a conventional agricultural business as we know it and, and as we think it should be. You know, we've, we've got to have the ability to be able to encompass all all business opportunities. Do you think, Paul, it's sometimes just a case of us um, having a little bit of humility, although many of us have been in agriculture for a very long time, we think we know how it's done, to sometimes just sit down and shut up and listen and, you know, be open to learning things that we, or to find these opportunities to learn something that we didn't think we already knew. Oh, I think that's 100% right. And um, I used to do a lot of presentations to groups of um, cattle graziers in, in North Queensland. And one of the things I used to say to them at the start, and I've got a small hobby farm in Tully, it's about 80 mm-hmm. hectares. And, you know, we have a, used to have half a dozen cows that used to roam around the back paddock. And I used to stand there at the start of, of each of those meetings and say, you know, we're here to learn about this today. I know everyone in the room thinks they've got the best cattle, but I actually have the best six, six cattle in Queensland. <laughs> you know, and, and that's one thing that, that 
we'll learn more from each other if we actually go in with an open mind and not my way is the right way from the start. And, you know, I, I think that's a learning from all businesses. If, if, if you walk in with a closed mind, you're going to come out with pretty much the same answer as you walked in. If you walk in with an open mind and prepared to engage in the conversation, I think you'd get something out of any conversation. Yeah, I think my fa- my my, uh, my favourite quote, which everyone's very annoyed that I keep using, but I love it. It's, um, only a wise man knows he's a fool. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, so other than that, to, uh, to finish up, broader opportunities for Northern Ag. So we've explored that there's a, there's a ton of opportunities for, you know, Aboriginal landholders and Aboriginal, Aboriginal people, but broadly in Northern Australia, because you have got experience across the whole of that Northern Australia. I was just saying to one of my team members today, it's almost like a, a state in itself, if you just draw a line across the tropical Capricorn up, isn't it? So it's um so what's your broader vision or opportunities um to northern australia and, and maybe why you're at it uh, what are the challenges that we have, need to overcome to to realize those opportunities if we look at the southern states first and and you look at some of those really key areas in new south wales victoria south australia the murray darling is constrained with water so we're not going to see that development and we're actually going to see water go back to the environment so you know we are going to see some shift in some of those southern states. In terms of Queensland, anything along the coast, which is your key growing regions and, and where it's more productive, where you get the bulk of your rainfall. Barrier reef issues, mm-hmm. so, so runoff. So we are constrained in some of those key areas. And one of the opportunities I see is, you know, look north. And we have analogies and you've used yours. And, and I, I like to... Uh, use my Jon Snow analogy from um, Game of Thrones and, and the North's coming. <laughs> and we've talked about it for decades around Northern Australia and, and we need to see development. But we actually do need to see development. We actually need to see it from an Australian government point of view. We need to make sure there's enough population living in North Australia, right across North Australia, from, from just our location in the world and the, and the ge- geopolitical shifts with we're experiencing at the moment. So we need a strong, vibrant North Australia and agriculture is where we can deliver a lot of that growth from. So I see those opportunities as as interlinked. We're very close to Asia and we've talked about being Asia's food bowl now for, I think I went to a presentation in 2006 <laughs> was when we started talking about that. It's starting to become a reality. We, we've got um, an export facility now based in Darwin. There's one in, in Cairns and we are starting to see produce leaving North Australia. So. The, the ingredients around available land, suitable soils, access to water, they're all present. They're all in North Australia and they're, they're all possible. So I think we'll see in the short term, we'll see cotton certainly establish in North mm-hmm. Australia. We've been championing cotton industry now for about five years. We did trials four years ago with 200 hectares across a couple of properties. We're up to about 8,000 hectares, so it's, it's been... Know, a, a modest growth, but we'll see that probably grow out to about forty or fifty thousand hectares over the next decade, and support you know in the order of a thousand new jobs in, mm-hmm. in the region. So, so that's really exciting. But I think we'll see the evolution of things like protected cropping, so growing things vertically, vertically growing things in glass houses, growing growing things in shade houses, and that's a little bit around where we started with the biosecurity conversation. So, trying to mitigate some of those risks. The, the measure, I think for me was always it's not how many cattle you can run it's how many kilos of beef per hectare is the conversation so 
if, if you apply that back across all of the agricultural commodities, it's how many kilos of mangoes per hectare. It's how many. So it's all all of that brought down. So how do we become more productive? How do we produce more with less? You know, how do we reduce our inputs? How do we make sure that we're using water most efficiently? We may not need more water in the system. In a lot of cases, we may be able to use more efficiently the water we have. And you know, let's look abroad at places like Israel and 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 how they they've actually developed an, an irrigation system in the desert. So there, there, there's a heap of learnings from other places. But I think the time is now that North Australia is a really attractive option in in comparison to land values. Land in the north is relatively cheap. So I think. We will see investment from established family farming families from southern states moving north. And with that will come not only capital, but it'll come expertise in production and, and more intensive production systems. So I, so I see this all sort of playing out together. And we're already starting to see that. And we're, we're seeing new international players come in. So we're seeing certainly South America, so Brazil, Argentina, investing in, in North Australia because they've got a lot of experience in broadacre cropping in those similar yeah. growing conditions. And Australia is a really stable place to invest. So, so, so I see a pretty rosy picture. So you're, you're saying to young guys and girls who are on southern properties, instead of telling their, asking their parents to buy their neighbour, say, buy me a farm in the north and I'll, and I'll yeah, go north, son and daughter. <laughs> yes, go north, go north, <laughs> head north. And I, I think that's right, is... And that's what we are seeing too, is, is established families starting to look at, you know, different opportunities. And we're certainly seeing corporates entering and exiting the market and, and, and moving and trading property. So, so I think we'll, we'll continue to see that evolve. I guess the one area of caution for me is around availability of workforce. There's no point developing if you can't get a workforce. The agricultural sector for you know, decades of struggle mm. to, to attack, attract and retain workers, and that's even harder in North Australia. So is the, is the so. evolution of uh, agri-tech, which is very popular, but it's a slow-moving beast, um, do you think that could come to the saviour of some of these operations or could revolutionise, especially in horticulture? You know, I've been watching lots of very interesting stuff on LinkedIn about automatic picking and stuff. Like that. Do you think this is um, something that's in the near future for a lot of growers? I would say mid-term, mid-future. I, I wouldn't say shorter term. I, I would be a little bit more pessimistic that to get that technology right is still maybe five to eight to ten yep. years away. That's not to say there won't be some early adopters that, that will get in and you know all of the industry will benefit from them doing that because someone's got to make the mistakes so we can <laughs> learn. But I think a, a lot of the technology is near or close to mm -hmm but not quite there, but it will have an impact at some yeah. stage over the, so, that midterm, so I would have thought. It. And we're already seeing that in, in pack lines now where it used to have people standing there sorting, grading, you know, nearly all of that's automated now and, and artificial intelligence and drones coming in to do, you know, bore runs and things that we used to pay someone to do. I, I think we will st see an evolution of that. Yeah. So it's just keep it on the horizon too and see the, take the opportunities when you see it really so yeah and i think from, from an industry perspective it's also get involved mm. you know don't let researchers do research that's not guided by industry because otherwise we end up with adverse outcomes that we didn't really want yeah great great yeah get involved in the research just don't wait for it to happen to you yeah, yeah. definitely 
And don't be the person that in 10 years' time sits there and says, I knew they should have done it that way. <laughs> well, tell us 10 years ago because we wouldn't have wasted those millions of dollars and, you know, we might have had an outcome yeah, earlier. be a participant. Just to finish off, you guys are organising a big conference in 23. Food, I think it's called the Food, Food Futures Conference in Northern Territory or is it Northern Australia. Can you tell us a bit more about that? You can give us a plug before you go, Paul. Oh, oh always love a good plug. So Food Futures event was actually born out of the original North Australia white paper. The federal government released the white paper and said, we're going to develop the North. And what we did at the time, and Ian Baker was was critical in this, said, well, we actually don't even have a vehicle to have these conversations. So, you know, it's all, all well and good for the government to say we're going to develop North Australia. Where's the investment? Where's the dollars? Where does the investment need to go? So we created a an agricultural event that's actually targeted at decision makers. So it's around having those hard conversations, but having all of those decision makers participate and listen to where we think we need to go. And, you know, some of the really big things that that have, you know, come out of, of, of food futures have been remarkable. You know, we had a conversation, and, and a lot of people may not know this, but Northern Australia hasn't been able to participate in the carbon market mm-hmm. for forestry plantations. At the moment, we're trying to plant a billion trees and we're trying to reduce our carbon. So why wouldn't North Australia be able to participate in that that market? So all of that was 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 teased out of a Food Futures Conference a particular year. And I'm pleased to say that the government's actually amending that regulation that plantations in North Australia will be able to participate in the carbon market. So, you know, there's some really cool outcomes. And, and what we aim to do with that event, and, and we get five or 600 delegates there and and from right across North Australia and, and, and certainly from Canberra. We let, we let them come out for a day or two. But it's around challenging people's thought processes and, and, and what are those enabling pieces of infrastructure? What are those legislative reforms that need to happen to enable the development? So Food Futures is a really cool event. And, you know, there's roughly 60 speakers over three days and there's a real focus on delivering outcomes. And NT Farmers founded the conference originally. We now got Ordco from Western Australia, our partners, AgForce from Queensland. The three state governments and the federal governments all participate at a very high level and contribute financially. So it is a, a significant event and it is meant to be thought-provoking and it's meant to push the agenda. And, and that's what we're trying That'd to do. That'd be great. Looking forward to it. So, so May next year... Head north. Head north Head again. Head north again. We're going to send everyone north. This is going to be like uh, uh, Game of Thrones, isn't it? Yeah, last one out, turn the lights <laughs> off. <laughs> All right. Last thing before we go, Paul. When you're not representing Northern Australia or looking after your six cows in Tully, what do you do? So how, how do you entertain yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm one of the luckiest people in Australia, I reckon, my morning starts every morning with, with a walk on the beach with my two dogs. And I go to Mindle Beach, it's three minutes up the road, and that's how I start my day every day. I see the sunrise as I'm walking up the beach in North Australia. It's generally somewhere at 6 o'clock in the morning. It's generally somewhere between 19 and 26. So, you know, a bit chilly at 19. You, you've got to find that jumper to put on. But I like to go to the theatre. I mean, I, I just I like to live life. Um it, it's, I like to meet interesting people and I love to travel. Yeah. I've, I'm really lucky that I've worked 
I had 20 years working internationally from places like Turkey to Papua New Guinea, New Zealand, the UK, Europe. So, you know, I've been really lucky. And I think once you get the travel bug, you've always got the travel bug. It, It never leaves you. Yeah, definitely. Well, very exciting. It sounds like you're living on an Instagram postcard, mate. <laughs> I try to avoid that. That's one thing I don't do in my spare time. I was thinking about you on the beach with a northern northern sunrise. It's like something most people get on the Instagram feed every morning. Uh, I must admit, during COVID, we'd be on calls and I'd often be talking to people in Melbourne and I used to start by saying, oh, you know, I'm sorry to hear you going into day 110 of home isolation and say, oh, just so you know, I've been to the beach this morning. I'm just about to go down the pub for a couple of beers. Now, what were we talking about in the meeting? And they'll be like, oh, no, bitter and twisted with the world. Oh, so you're a little bit of torture for everyone, for the southerners, once a day. Yeah. Oh, very good. So always trying to attract the yeah. north. And, and it was interesting during COVID. We did have a lot of um, Australian people migrate north yeah. because we, we did have the freedom. You know, we were, we were really lucky during Even COVID. Even I spent a week in the Kimberley during lockdown, during COVID, so it was... Um, yeah, it's one of those places that tends to grab people by both hands, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And you, it's like a disease. You can't get rid of it. Once once the tropics and North Australia is in your blood, it's in your blood forever. Well, Paul, on that note, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Everyone would have learned a hell of a lot from you and look forward to seeing you at the conference next year. Fantastic. And thanks very much. And thanks to AgriMaster. This is a great initiative. Well done. And I hope hope you, your viewers get something out of it and you know please reach out to nt farmers if anyone's got any queries as always if you'd like to know more about agrimaster farm business management software and services you can find us at www.agrimaster.com.au or find us on twitter linkedin facebook and instagram if you like this episode please share it on social media or directly with a friend and let's make farm business great together.